you would please turn with me to Matthew chapter 9. We're going to start in verse 14. All right. Then the disciples of John came to him asking, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, The attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. But no one puts a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment, and a worse tear results. Nor do people put new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wineskins burst, and the wine pours out, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into fresh wineskins, and both are preserved. Sometimes, and I know you're aware of this, you can think of a hundred examples of this probably, but it's very often that different people can see the same event or experience the same thing, and some people can come away thinking that's a, that's a great thing, that's an awesome thing, and other people can think that's a terrible thing, it's a disaster. Right? It happens every election, right? Or take this example. Um, back in 1783, in a place called Annonay, France, the public got its first glimpse of something called a hot air balloon. They had this scaffolding thing built and built a fire underneath it and this giant like canvas, I don't know what it was made out of, but something like canvas. And they lit the fire and it heated up with air and they you know, cut the cords and this thing took off. And the crowd that got to witness that was amazed in a positive way. And we know that because our own Benjamin Franklin was in the crowd that day. And he wrote about it. He called it a marvel. And talked about the amazement of the crowd. As this thing, he knew, he could see Ed like this is like maybe a first step toward human flight. And it was awesome as this thing went an estimated 6,000 feet in the air. But then there were some peasants miles away who had no idea what a hot air balloon was or that one had been launched. All they knew was this dot from the sky began slowly getting bigger as it descended on their little neck of France, and it was terrifying. This thing was a couple of stories high. It was 30 feet in diameter, and it was obviously coming for them. And literally, they went and got pitchforks and farm tools, and they got a plan together and went and attacked this and hacked this thing up, thinking it was some force of evil. Same event, viewed by different people from different perspectives, which colored their perception of an event. Happens all the time. That is certainly the case of an event that we've been talking about now for a couple of weeks. Um, in the book of Matthew, chapter 9, I didn't read it this morning, but for background, here's the event I'm talking about. Jesus, uh, in Matthew chapter 9, decided to call as a disciple a man named Matthew. In the other Gospels, he's called by a Hebrew name, Levi. And he was a tax collector. Tax collectors were probably the most hated members of Jewish society in the first century. They were sellouts. They were traitors. They extorted their countrymen to make themselves rich and support Rome. And Jesus calls Matthew to be a disciple, even though Matthew didn't ask for the job. And Matthew does that. And Matthew slash Levi is so 
excited that after feeling the rejection and hatred from every other Jew, he finds, he finds love and acceptance from the Son of God, from Jesus. And he's so excited about that that he invites all of his friends, his real friends, not his new churchy friends, his real friends, the tax collectors and sinners, the TCNS club. We said two weeks ago, we know what tax collectors are. Sinners, the designation sinners in the first century was a designation for the most vile and violent and criminal segments of first century Jewish society. That's who was in this this dinner party that Matthew invited all of his friends over so they could meet Jesus. I, I said it was, like, it was like prison ministry, only these guys hadn't made it to prison yet. And it's, I just, I'm so glad that story is in the New Testament because it lets us know that none of us are too far gone to find acceptance from God through Jesus Christ. Amen? Like if these guys can be saved, anybody can be saved. I'm so glad it's there. It gives me so much hope. But not everyone who saw that dinner party had the same perspective. Not everybody who saw it thought it was a good thing. For the last two weeks, we've been looking at one group of people who didn't like this, this party. They're called the Pharisees. They're a, like a pol- political slash religious group. And they came and saw this party uh, and asked Jesus' disciples, and word got to Jesus. They asked, why are you doing this? Why is Jesus eating with people this sinful? How can you claim Jesus to be at the same time with God, from God, but at the same time recline at a table, eat with, which was fellowship with, with, which is accept, which is befriend people that sinful? The the real answer, the simple answer to that is, if Jesus can't be with people that sinful, he can't be with people this sinful. He can either accept sinners or he can't. And praise God he can. But for two weeks we've looked at at that answer, or or that question, why are you eating with tax collectors and sinners? Today, we meet another group with another perspective who also has a problem with this party at Matthew's house. And they're not the bad guys. The Pharisees are quickly becoming the bad guys in the Jesus story. Today, the disciples of John the Baptist come and have a problem with this party. And John the Baptist is anything but a bad guy. John the Baptist is a good guy. John the Baptist is Jesus' cousin. And Jesus has nothing ever but glowing things to say about John the Baptist. In fact, he'll say, basically, I'm paraphrasing, but he'll say he's the best dude that's ever been born. And now, by this time, John's in prison. And so maybe his disciples don't have the contact with John that they have always, have always enjoyed. But the point is, these aren't, these aren't the bad guys. But they've got a problem with Jesus eating at this party. But their problem's a little bit different. The question that has been asked before we started today's passage, the question that has been asked is, why are you eating with tax collectors and sinners? Today, John's disciples ask, why are you eating at all? Because John, um, or John's disciples, had picked up the tradition of fasting regularly. 
Um, tradition tells us, we won't find this in the Bible, but tradition tells us that the Pharisees fasted two days a week, Mondays and Thursdays. And Jesus has already talked about, don't fast like they fast, because they fasted to let people see how righteous they are. Look how, look how hungry I am. I'm really serious about God. They did that twice a week. John's disciples had this same habit of fasting. We learn in Mark that this feast that Jesus was eating or at this dinner party was on one of their days of regular fasting. So it was either on a Monday or a Thursday, most likely. And they come by and, and they see Jesus not fasting, but feasting. And they want to know why. Not why are you eating with tax collectors and sinners, why are you eating, period. And Jesus is going to answer that question uh, with kind of two answers. One's kind of an obvious one, and then one that doesn't seem like it has anything to do with the topic at hand, but it does. So what we're going to do this morning, I'm going to give you the obvious answer. I'm going to give you sort of the the hidden answer or the, the one that doesn't seem to fit. And then I want to share with you what I think are common ways we can make the same mistakes that the disciples of John the Baptist, other good people, make. If John the Baptist's disciples can have some bad ideas about Jesus and what it's like to to be with him and what his purpose is and why he came, then probably anybody can make mistakes like that. So here's where we're going to start. Here's where we're going to start. We're going to start with the obvious answer to this question. Why don't you fast? They ask. And Jesus answers uh, this question. Verse 14, um, we, why do we and the Pharisees fast regularly or fast often? But you and your disciples don't fast. We fast. The Pharisees fast. We can't all be wrong. You guys don't. Why not? A quick word about fasting. Uh, first, it's important to just lay down Jesus and his disciples weren't breaking anything from the Old Testament law. Um, nowhere in the scriptures are we commanded to fast. Old Testament, New Testament, it's just not there. Um, with one exception. In the Old Testament, Israel was commanded to fast, to not eat. Fasting is giving up food for a period of time. Not eat on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. That was a fast. Um, We do not, as Christians, follow that because uh, we don't have a Day of Atonement. We have the Lamb of God who atoned for our sins. Our sins have been fully atoned for. So we don't sacrifice lambs in a temple anymore. So there's nothing like illegal about what Jesus is doing. But that being said, it's not that fasting isn't a legitimate practice, because it is. Jesus even says in part of his answer, a day's coming when my disciples will fast, and I'll be okay with it. It'll be when he is taken away, and they are scared, and they're mourning, and they will, they will fast. I've done fasting. Okay? It's not a, it's not a, it's, there's nothing wrong with it. But... Uh, the idea that Mondays and Thursdays you're doing Christianity wrong unless you don't eat on these days um, would be a mistake. Now, we're not told uh, like word for word why John's disciples fasted, but we can figure it out because they're John's disciples. And, and John 
John the Baptist. John the Baptist, he was the forerunner of Christ. He was the one who prepared the way for Jesus. If you want to hear um, me teach about his ministry, you can go through our website, find the sermons on Matthew chapter 3, and there's, there's, there's one on John the Baptist's ministry. But if I could sum up John the Baptist's ministry in one word, it would be this word, repentance. You want to know what John the Baptist's ministry was about? Repentance. In, in Matthew chapter 3, did I say John chapter 3 a second ago? I meant Matthew chapter 3. In Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist was, was shown a picture of his ministry. He called people to repent. Repentance is this. It's a change of mind that results in changed behavior. That's repentance. It's a change of mind that results in a change in behavior. And John was asking people to repent of their sin and their righteousness. Repent of your sin, repent of your righteousness. Repentance of sin means this. I'm going to see my sin the way God sees my sin. I'm going to agree with God about my sin. That's confession. I see this the way you see it. Repentance, I change my mind about that being a good idea, and that works its way out in changed behavior. See your sin as sin. John the Baptist, big part of his ministry. He also asked people to repent of their righteousness, which means... He was preparing the way for Jesus now. He said, make a list of all the things that you think make you a good person. And you better change your mind about that making you a good person. It might be temple worship, animal sacrifices, sins you don't sin, good things you do. You need to change your mind about that being good enough. Repent of your righteousness because he was preparing the way for the one he said was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's John the Baptist. So here's his disciples. They, they are steeped in a ministry of repentance. When you've ever been convicted of, of sin, when you've ever come to realize, I've been doing something very wrong, how'd you feel? When you got past the point of making excuses and you know, justifying it or you couldn't help it or if it was anybody else's fault, how do you feel? You feel bad. You feel sickened about yourself. There's almost a sense of mourning. And I think that's sort of what John the Baptist's disciples are doing. In this culture, fasting accompanied mourning for sure, and by extension, this idea of repentance. I'm so sickened at who I am, I'm going to mourn my condition. I'm not going to eat. And I think because they follow, they identify with a ministry of repentance, here's what they're doing. Two days a week, I'm going to lock myself in the dark room of the soul and make sure I'm really, really sorry for my sins. That's who they are. That's what they do. I feel really bad about it twice a week. Oh man, I'm such a miserable person. And John told us we've got to be like this. Then they walk by on a Monday or a Thursday, a day when they're in the dark room of the soul, they've put themselves in timeout, spiritual timeout because of their sin, and they look in and see Jesus and his disciples. And they're not in the dark room of anything. They're not fasting. They're having a party. Everybody's really having a great time. And Jesus is not going through the list of things these terribly sinful people had better quit if they want to have a relationship with him. And they don't have any mental mental framework to make sense of that. And so I think 
they want to ask, like, why is nobody fasting? Why is everybody so happy? And it's a pretty good question. Because if you go through the Old Testament and find a story of someone, a good person, bad person, whatever, coming face to face with God, they usually don't feel happy. They usually fall down and wet themselves. That, that last part I just threw in there, but it's, I'm sure it happened. And here, like our guy, John the Baptist, said that Jesus is the Son of God, Emmanuel, God with us. But they're really having a great time. And they feel acceptance and not condemnation. And so they ask, can you help us out here, Jesus? Why aren't you fasting? Why aren't you telling these guys how sickened and sorry and terrible they have to feel about themselves before you'll have anything to do with them? All right, Jesus answers the question. The obvious answer is this. Here's the Cliff Notes version. Being with me isn't a time for joy. Excuse me, isn't a time for mourning. It's a time for joy. This isn't the right time for fasting, for mourning, for sadness. He says it this way, verse 15. Jesus said to them, The wedding guests cannot mourn while the bridegroom is with them. Can they? The days are coming when the bridegroom will be taken from them and they will fast. I love to point out times where Jesus calls himself God pretty clearly. This is one of them. So that when some very nice people knock on your door and try to explain to you how Jesus really wasn't fully God, you, you at least have something in your mind and heart that goes, man, I, just, I can't put my finger on it, but that doesn't sound right. Okay? Uh, the 23rd verse of this whole book Jesus has already been called Emmanuel. What's Emmanuel mean? God with us. This is what Jesus is showing right here. I am God with us. Now he's doing it with the TCNS club, the tax collectors and sinners club. But remember, if, if, if Jesus can't be with people that sinful, he can't be with people this sinful either. He's God with us. And here's what he says. He says, I'm the bridegroom. We would call it the groom. And I've shown up to be a part of, this is the wedding time. Now, that doesn't sound like he's calling himself God, does it? But if we were to go into, check me out in Hosea chapter 2, a good place for this. Check that out later. Guess who it is in the Old Testament who calls himself the bridegroom, the groom, the husband? That's God. Like the Old Testament Israel, God. Yahweh, God of Israel, God the Father. Okay, the great I Am, you name it. That's the groom. And Jesus says, hey, disciples of John the Baptist, the groom has come to start the wedding. That's what I'm doing here. I'm God with us. You can't, you can't ask people when God with us shows up to start a relationship with it. You can't ask somebody to, sad, to be sad. It would be like you going to a wedding... And refusing, and this is, by the way, it's really like the bridal party. This is like the, the bride and his, excuse me, the groom and his bros. Okay? It would be like being one of the groomsmen and refusing to celebrate this, your, your buddy's wedding because, well, I mean, take my word for it. 
when the bills start coming in, you guys start fighting. It ain't always going to be what it's cracked up to be. Don't be that guy at a wedding, please. Okay? That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, John the Baptist's disciples, you're being that guy. This is not a time for mourning and fasting. This is a time for joy. That's the obvious question. Why aren't you fasting? Because this is not a sad time. This is a joyful time. But then Jesus takes off on this tangent thing. Uh, on something that seems like a tangent, something that seems like it doesn't have anything to, uh, to do with his first answer. But he does. And here's, it's really the second part of this answer, why do you fast? But more than that, I think this is Jesus telling John's disciples why the question they're asking is the wrong question. Or maybe he's pointing out what's wrong in their hearts that's making them ask a bad question or expect something bad uh, from Jesus. Jesus knows there's kind of under-the-surface questions. You, you know why you want me to fast? Because you want me to fit into your definition of what righteousness looks like. You want me to act how you think I should act. They're basically saying, why, why do you have to do things so differently, Jesus? I mean, we're pretty sure we know what righteousness looks like. We know the difference between right and wrong. The rightest people are closest to righteous. The wrongest people are the furthest away from righteous. So stop. Why why do you go in and eat with the wrongest kind of people? Why Why can't you just fast like we fast? Do righteousness the way we're used to righteousness being done. Um... By the way, it's important to know when Jesus ate supper with the tax collectors and sinners, he did that at Matthew's house. He did not go out sinning with the tax collectors and sinners. He didn't go out extorting people with the tax collectors. He didn't decide, you know, he ministered to prostitutes. But he didn't decide, you know what, they need a friend while they're, you know, right there in the middle of their business. No. You know what? Drunks are so stuck in that. I need, I, I should be so much with them that I'm going to be with them doing that. You know, he didn't go out sinning with the sinners because they needed a friend so badly that I'm going to jump into that muck with them. No, more on that in a little bit. Um, but he also didn't fit John's uh, disciples' definition of righteousness either. Here's what they want. Jesus, why don't you go in there and say, here's the list of things you guys had better get... If you want to show me you're serious about God, here's the stuff you had better quit. You get that quit, then we'll talk. Why don't you do it that way? After all, remember their, their, their background is about repentance, which is a good thing, which is a very good thing. Those are the hidden questions that Jesus is, is dealing with. By the way, yeah, we'll get to that later. So here's what Jesus said. Here's his answer. That why you're asking the wrong question. He says, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment 
because the patch will pull away from the garment and the tear will be worse. And no one, no one pours new wine into an old wineskin. Otherwise, the skins burst and the wine is spilled out and the skins are destroyed. Instead, they put new wine into new wineskins and both are preserved. Um, here's Cliff Notes' version of that. Jesus says, you can't fit me and what I'm doing into your old model of righteousness. You can't fit me and what I'm doing into your old religion. You can't fit me and what I'm doing into every bit of your old lifestyle. It's a whole new thing. Trying to fit me into what you've always done would be like this. See the cartoon up there with the, the gal? She's, got a, she's put a, taken a patch of, of cloth that has not shrunk yet. She's sewn it onto a garment that's already shrunk. Then, and it looks fine at first, but over time or when it gets wet, as that patch starts to shrink, it will actually tear the garment worse than it was before. That makes sense, right? Um, same thing with wineskins. Uh, back in the day, wineskins were made out of parts of dead animals. Mmm, doesn't that sound good? I mean, that one is usually goats. I couldn't find a goat. That's actually a pig carcass. I mean, come on, if you come on over supper. I got some Cabernet Sauvignon and this dead pig here. Can I interest you in a glass? Mmm, yeah. Pairs well with nothing. Um, but what they would do is they'd pour wine in these skins because of the elastic properties. Sometimes they were like stomachs because they stretch, right? And as the fermenting process starts and the gases start, they will stretch with that and keep it under the right pressure and it wouldn't burst. And then as it, as it relaxed, then the, you know, the wine was, was there. But once they were stretched out and back to their normal size, the, the elastic property was gone, And so if you tried it again, if you tried to put new wine into an old wineskin, it would start to stretch, it would get a tear in it, and you'd have a wineskin that wasn't worth anything, and the wine would be wasted and spilled out on the ground too. So here's what Jesus is saying. When you try to fit me into your old ways of doing things, here's what's going to happen. Your old way of doing things is going to be a mess. It's going to make it worse, not better. And I'm not going to be any good for you either. It's like you're going you're gonna to spill me out on the carpet. You're going to be very disillusioned with me and your life's not going to get any better. Jesus came, his words not mine, to establish a new covenant. It's a new thing. A new agreement between God and people with God and the people Israel, but the rest of us Gentiles get to partake in it as well. And it's a, it requires a, it's a whole new bag, it's a whole new game, it's a whole new garment. Don't try to make me act the way you think I should act or be who you think I should be. Okay, so there's, there's the answer. Jesus, why, why don't you fast? He says, well, it's a time for joy, not a time for fasting. And he says, I know what's really going on here. You're trying to get me to act like you think I should act and do for you and your religion what you know it can't do. And don't go down that road any farther because you're going to get really, you're going to ruin your old way of doing things and be really disillusioned with me. How do you and I, 
tend to make those same mistakes with Jesus. If John the Baptist's disciples can make errors like this, I think you and I can too. I'm just going to give you two. Two ways that we make these, tend to make these same errors. First, anytime we try and ask Jesus to be the fix to our old life, we risk making our life worse and becoming disillusioned with Jesus. Okay, the original, like, meaning of this, Jesus was saying, uh, and this is the way it's normally read and taught, and it's correct. Here were some Old Testament people that wanted to keep living according to the Old Testament law. Righteousness is measured based on who is the rightest, not in who is the wrongest, right? And Jesus said, you're going to try to add me to that, and it just doesn't work. I've said this before. We tend to try and make Jesus the sin custodian, the sin janitor. If we're like the, the, the Pharisees or John the Baptist's disciples, not bad guys, John the Baptist's disciples, but if we're more like them, here's how that works. I find my righteousness really in being, being better. Stuff I've cut out of my life, good things I've added to my life, and I want to, that's where I want my righteousness to be found in what I do. And when I fail, because nobody's perfect, I'll try to get Jesus out of the closet, bring him over and sweep up my sin that I sinned, but kindly go back and let me get back to the business of being better than everyone, although we would never say that. Okay? Jesus said, I've got to give you a whole new garment. You've got to take off that old thing and put on something new. My, your righteousness, if you're going to hang out with me, is based on what I did and I give you. Okay, now, the other side of that, though. We don't have to be like the Pharisees to make this mistake. Because those people, in the tax collectors and sinners who are going to start a relationship with Jesus, you know what they were going to have to do? They weren't going to be able to use Jesus and just keep their old life either. They were going to have to change too. Everybody who starts a relationship with Jesus and walks with Jesus gets a new life. And Jesus was not going to be the patch on the holes of their old life either. Jesus wasn't going to be content to let them continue to extort people and be vile and be violent and be criminals and be their sin custodian either. I can live however I want. Jesus will forgive me. It doesn't matter. And then when I make a real mess of things, I'll go get Jesus out of the sin closet and bring him out and say, please clean this up. But after you've cleaned me up and put me back together, kindly go get back in the closet because you're my sin custodian. Jesus says, no. I came to give you a new life. And we do this first one all the time. We have a list of things that are wrong in our life. Too many people have this list of stuff I wish was better. And I've tried everything in the world to fill these holes in the garment of my life. Maybe I'll try some Jesus. Maybe he'll fix them the way I want them fixed. There is a whole segment of American... I don't even want to say this, but American Christianity, if you're listening to this on the internet, that was giant air quotes, because I don't think this is Christianity at all. But there's a whole segment of American Christianity that goes like this. 
If you do Christianity right, Jesus will give you what you want. You just got to name it the right way and you claim it this way and you believe like this and you pray like that and do the right things and you make Jesus give you what you want the way you want it. You can have your best life now. Jesus said, he says right here, don't, you're going you're gonna to hold me responsible for not keeping promises I never made. Because I did not come to be the patch on the holes you made in your life. I came to give you a whole new life. That's one way. We have this problem. Now I'll go back kind of to the beginning of the passage. Here's the other way. We make the mistake of John the Baptist's disciples. And that's this. When I don't live a life that displays joy. This will never stop being true. (laughs) When, When God shows up to be with you, instead of God showing up to be against you. That's who God should be, right? He should be God against us. Jesus is God with us. And by faith in Christ, that never stops being true. Do you know why we confess so, and repent? Were John the Baptist's disciples wrong? They go in and like, man, shouldn't people be in sackcloth and ashes and just crying over their sin? Because isn't repentance important? Yes, it's important. It's vital. But it's, it, but it's not the prerequisite to a relationship. It's a result. Every good relationship needs confession and repentance. I'm going to use a relationship with my wife, and she hates it when I do this. <laughs> All right. But just imagine this. I'm in a relationship with my wife, and I am, praise God, I'm sure she is not going anywhere. Right? But if I just continually do what offends her, what she hates, what is wrong, and then I just say, well, God hates divorce, so you're stuck. Is Is that good or is that not good? Right? My relationship with Jesus, because it's a good relationship. Here's why I could, here's what leads me to do confession and repentance. He ate with the tax collectors and sinners. He can accept people like that. So no matter what I, what I drag into the light and confess to him, he will not turn his back on me. He won't. That's why I can come and confess to him and repent, because my joy comes from being in a relationship with one who will not reject me because of my sin. But my joy comes from relating to him. So when he shows me things that I should cut out of my life for the betterment of my relationship to him, I do it because that's my joy. In the same way that with Rachel, I, I may have to cut stuff out because I love her. I don't cut stuff out to make her love me or to manipulate her. But because I love her, I may make some changes. That's confession and repentance with Jesus. But listen, the joy comes because I will always be accepted from him. 
When God looks at me, I am acceptable because of what Jesus did on the cross. Now, Christian, if that's true about you, are you in Christ in the way Paul said? Have you placed your faith in Jesus? You're forgiven of your sin. How many sins will you have to pay for when you, get to, when you stand before him? Zero. He did enough. If that's true about you, where is your joy? How joyful is your life? What other people say, this is somebody who's a joy, who's an encouragement, who feeds me just being around them because the joy they have through Christ is palpable. If not, guess what I think your problem is? C number one. I can't have joy. You know why? Because I got this hole and that problem and this hole. And the only way I can have joy is if God fixes my problem and he ain't got around to it yet. So I'm going to sit here in this dark room. I can't have joy unless you change. Listen, I want to tell you something, and I mean it. I mean it just as real as it sounds. I love you. You can hurt me. You can make me sad, but you cannot touch my joy. That's above your pay grade. You can't touch it. You can't scratch it. You can't have it. Because it's based on something you can't reach. And more and more when I walk with the Lord, I will, that joy will become evident in my life. And I will stop trying to use God to, to patch and fill and spackle. And I will see, oh, you didn't promise to fix all my problems the way I wanted them fixed. You promised to walk with me through them. You promised to show me how I could have joy in the midst of them. You showed me how to reflect that joy on other people so that they might say, man, what is it? Why can you have joy when if I had your problems, I'd be a nightmare. Because God decided to be God with me and not God against me. And that will never, ever change. I'm a new wineskin. I'm a new garment. I'm a new wineskin and he's pouring new wine, fresh and new all the time. And he's enough. And it's good. Being with Jesus is the time for joy. Every single day is a time for joy. Listen, I, some of you were here. We gathered with the Lyons family yesterday. And if you weren't here, you should have seen it. What a terrible day to bury your husband, your dad, your grandpa, your friend. But there was joy. There was joy. And if it doesn't go away then, why should it go away when I don't have the house I want? I don't have the job I want. I don't have a, start, I don't have a, a spot on the starting lineup. Where do I find my joy? And can other people tell it's there? Pray with me. We'll sing and go home. 
Father God, I thank you so much that you decided to be God with us rather than God against us by sending your son and being against him and pouring out your wrath on him. And thank you, Lord Jesus, for showing us none of us have outsinned your ability to love sinners. You want us to confess and to repent because you want a closer relationship with us. You want to use us more in the lives of other people. But I thank you, Lord, that my ability to repent and be righteous does not, uh, is not a requirement for you to be in a relationship with me. God, forgive us where we have tried to use you to patch the holes of, of desires and wants we have in our lives. You don't work like that. Thank you for giving us a new garment, making us a new wineskin that you would pour yourself into. You would clothe us with your righteousness. Help us more and more to find our joy that you have fixed our greatest problem, which was separation from God. And then walk through us in those things you say no to, that you decide not to fix the way we would want them fixed that someone else might be able to see your joy through us when things ain't great. We love you, Lord. Thanks for loving us first. In Jesus' name, amen.